Welcome to A Penny for Your Thoughts, a broadcast brought to you by Sean Bloomgren and Andrew Penny from Central Iowa. On our show, we're going to discuss all things agronomy, high yield management, and give you real-time updates on what we're seeing and hearing in the field. And we'll gain insights from industry professionals as we bring you relevant and timely information on current agronomic practices. Good morning and welcome, Andrew. How are you today? Doing really, really, really well today, Sean. Uh, super excited about our guest. You, uh, you teased us at the end of episode three uh, that we were going to have a special guest. Why don't you go ahead and introduce our guest today? Yeah, so our, our guest today is uh, Allison Robertson. Uh, she's definitely uh, someone that's made a huge impact on my career. Uh, you know, I, I can think back, boy, 10, 15 years ago when I first uh, met Allison. And uh, I, I remember just picking her brain and probably being that annoying guy out in the audience, always always asking her questions, uh, outside the box questions. And, and I'm sure, and sure making her think in ways she probably never thought she would. So, uh, you know, she's just been a great mentor to me and uh, super excited to have her on today. Well, welcome, Allison. Would you kind of start, I guess, Allison, uh, tell us about yourself and your background. Um, hi, guys. Thank <laughs> you for having me this morning. <laughs> and um, yeah, Andrew continues to challenge me. Even yesterday, he was on the phone <laughs> with some bizarre question. So, um, but my name's Alison Robertson. I've been a um, field crops pathologist at Iowa State University since 2004. Um, before that, I have I got my PhD from Clemson University, and um, I I grew up in Zimbabwe, and um, got my bachelor's degree in South Africa, and then went back to Zimbabwe and worked as an extension tobacco pathologist there for five years. And while I was doing that, I got my master's degree there, and then um, came over to the states in 1999. And um, I've been here ever since. And I hang on to my accent because it means that I can ask dumb questions and people don't realize that I've lived here for uh, 23 years. So, yes. Do you, do you have to actively work at that to hold on to your accent? Is that is that practiced or is it that innate? And uh, Not really, no. I mean, um, I, I still say tomato. I still say plant. Um, I have. Um, I loved garage earlier, <laughs> as, as we were. What did you say? I, I loved how you said garage earlier. You know, as, as well as I know you. Oh, garage, you know, garage, yeah, yeah. I, my I, garage, I love... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I get confused about what's American and what's Zimbabwean, and so I can't remember. Um, and yeah, I mean, I still call the trunk the boot of the car and yeah i still call ketchup tomato sauce and um, my kids are bilingual so it's okay with them but well, well i'm yeah, glad you brought I, that up because because often when i'm when i'm uh talking that i don't know or, or just thinking about listening to you i don't know if it's i love the information or, or just love the accent and i think it's just a combination of both <laughs> yeah, I think sometimes I get I get it easy because I have this accent. So, um, yeah. <laughs> well, Allison, we 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 kind of we kind of start our show with with a question that's similar every time. But before we do that, I guess I'd actually like to just take a quick bunny trail. So give me um, give me the most uh, similarities between farming in North America and Zimbabwe, and then give me the things that are uh, most different. Oh my goodness. Um, so 
I'm just, I'm, I mean, I guess a big difference between the two is that in Zimbabwe, there's a lot of um, labor available, right? And um, so, you know, with the farmers that I worked in, in Zimbabwe and realized that those were tobacco farmers, um, they would, on the farms, they would have a whole village of people who would stay there. So there would be, you know, 30 to 50 families who worked on the farms and um, tobacco is very intensive in Zimbabwe. And so there's a lot of hand harvesting of the leaves and hand planting. And, and so, you know, we would have the, the um, fathers and sometimes the, the mothers out there. There would be a school on the farm um, where the kids could go to school. Um, so I think that that's one um, really big difference. Um, Another big difference would just be the use of um, GMOs. You know, um, much here, um, you know, much more accepted here, but in Zimbabwe, still not very accepted. Um, and another thing that I can think of is, I mean, if you're a farmer in Zimbabwe, you're a farmer, whereas, you know, here in the States, you often have a second job, right? You're working at in town doing something. Um, but similarities, I mean, working hard, getting up early in the morning and getting chores done and getting out into the into the fields. Um, yeah. I, 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 and then, I mean, similarity, other similarities, especially here in Iowa, would just be big fields, right? And the same with um, Zimbabwe. It's, you know, you would, I can remember driving down and just seeing fields and fields of um, of crops. Um, we we had much more diversified agriculture in Zimbabwe compared to um, compared to this compared to Iowa, right? So we we used to grow a lot of different crops. There's not a lot of farming going on there now. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate the perspective. It's not every day you get a talk to someone that has a worldwide experience like that. We could probably do a whole episode on, um, you know, kind of the, the different agronomic clients, uh, climates, um, but we, uh, we'll, we'll kind of get started here. So we, we like to uh, send some positivity and some excitement to our listeners. So we start the show by asking all of our guests, what is the thing you are most excited about in agriculture today? What am I most excited about? Um, I think one thing that um, happened to me this this um, growing season, I was down in Southeast Iowa at the Iowa State Research Farm there. And um, there was a guy spraying um, fungicide on a, on a commercial farm next door using a drone. And um, so I went and sat with him for half an hour and we just talked about, you know, applying the applying the fungicide using the drone. And, um, you know, he, he showed me he had his iPad there, and we could see the we could see the drone lift off and go round. We could see where it had sprayed. It would come back and um, land, and he would refill it, you know, in a, in thirty seconds or something, and off it would go again. And um, I got really excited about that. I thought that that was really cool. Um, and I mean, I, 
yeah, so, and I just wonder, you know, I keep wondering where we'll be in five to 10 years. Oh, is it only going to be drones? I mean, I think it could only be drone. It only needs to be drones, right? And, um, and yeah, I mean, I just think using planes and, and helicopters is that now that we have drones, why do we need to use those? Those drones can get in on the edges of the fields really nicely. Um, it's much more, it, it seems like a much more controlled spray because you can get in closer over the canopy. Um, but the one thing that I would encourage with those drones is that not, I would say with those drones is now there's absolutely no excuse for not leaving two or three check strips in your field. <laughs> there you go. Well there you said. Go. It's, it's funny, you know, they had a couple pretty exciting drones at the Farm Progress show. There was one that was actually a man, literally a man could ride on. And then um, and then obviously this uh, this it's starting to get more widespread that they use drones and it, it, it seems like just a few years ago you know we had tinfoil on the antennas and <laughs> you know you're putting gps trackers on them oh, iPads randomly, in the yeah, combine. yeah they'd randomly just fly away and you'd go find it you know there was a i don't remember the year but there was a rather big one that got lost in a cornfield and it was unfortunately found with a corn head not by uh, not by people but um allison our goal today is is to spend some time um talking about tar spot but kind of as a lead up to that obviously you spend a lot of time in the fields could you just tell us about the observations you've made um uh maybe tar spot or otherwise just what diseases are you seeing in the field right now and and what observations are you making um so in the in the diseases that i've been seeing in the field is obviously tar spot right but um i've also seen northern corn leaf blight um gray leaf spot southern rust not too much common rust, um, a little bit of hocus leaf spot. Um, but yeah, I've seen some anthracnose top dieback, um, a little bit of crown rot, but kind of the, you know, the diseases that I expect to see every year. Um, yeah, and then, and I also, I have trials um, all around the state. So in all four corners and then the northern and southern Iowa. And um Definitely, you know, the, the diseases that I see, the, definitely the diseases that I see depend on um, the area where I am, right? So, for example, in South, we were in Southeast Iowa um, last week, um, a lot of disease developing down there. Um, Northeast Iowa, we were there a couple of days before that not so much disease. And then um, the week prior to that, we'd been in Southwest and Northwest Iowa and just, um, yeah, not much to see. Definitely no, tar I didn't see any tar spot there. I think in Southwest Iowa, we literally saw one tar spot. Wow. Um, and that was it. But And, and Northwest Iowa, I didn't see anything. Um, no tar spot, just a couple of gray leaf spot lesions, couple of northern, but yeah. So it really depends on where you are, right? Which totally makes sense because <laughs> the old disease triangle. <laughs> yeah, for those of you that for those of you that aren't joining us on video today, yeah, we, Allison was showing us the triangle. I love it. <laughs> well, well, I feel like that was a perfect segue, Allison, to uh, kind of digging in. You know, just just having that discussion around tar spot. And so you, you kind of mentioned that one area only finding one tar spot lesion, and, and I feel like you know, from my experience, you know, I remember walking uh, in 2018 trying to turn those 
those uh, counties red when we were confirming tar spot at Iowa State. I remember walking into fields and there was literally, you could walk a field and just find one, one lesion. And it was just, it was just so strange because, you know, you, you, you typically think about tar spot and just leaves can be covered with, with those black spots. And to find one lesion on one plant, it, it's just a strange disease. And so, you know, I, I figure I'd just give a little bit of background on tar spot before we, before we start asking you questions. So, you know, tar spot was first ID'd in uh, 2015 in Illinois and Indiana. Um, it, it's actually been a major foliar disease in Latin America since uh, 1904. And, uh, you know, uh, Allison and I had a discussion yesterday about uh, spore production with tar spot. And I actually found some data out of Illinois. And uh, um, they, so they found that uh, tar spot with 10% with disease severity, they, they showed that tar spot can produce 1 million to 10 million ascospores per gram of dry mass at 10% disease severity. So, so I think that that just gives us an indication, uh, you know, looking at some of the severities that we've seen with tar spot, both in Indiana, Illinois, and Iowa, at the amount of spores that can be produced with this, uh, with this pathogen. So uh, some other interesting information, um, it, it does overwinter here in Iowa. We confirmed that uh, a number of years ago. And I, I think one of the interesting things, you know, we always have the discussion about the inoculum, uh, you know, the, the chance for disease next year. And, and so they found that about five to 40% of those spores can can survive uh, on the on the residue, and so I, I think those are some in, some interesting numbers. So so I, I think as we uh, move into this discussion on tar spot, um, Allison, I, I guess just give us your thoughts on, you know, uh, you know, we, we think about tar spot where we're at now as far as disease severity. Um, what's what's your thoughts on 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 where we're at now with with tar spots, you know, specifically? Um, I mean, so. Tar spot is here to stay, right? It's not going away. And it's just going to be another disease that we have to manage, just like gray leaf spot and northern corn leaf blight. Um, this year, 2022, tar spot was confirmed first in Iowa from across the north central corn belt kind of region, which was a little um, unusual. And then we were lighting up um, uh, counties well before Indiana and Wisconsin and Illinois, um, just because they were so dry out there. And we had that little bit of early morning, um, early um, moisture, right? And so that helped with the development of the disease. Um, you know, when I look at Southeast Iowa, there is so much inoculum there. I mean, we have so much disease down there. And the, like you mentioned with the spores, right? I, I can't remember that. Um, one to 10 million spores from that 10% leaf severity. There were some plants that we were assessing um, last week that we had 60 to 70% wow. severity Jeez. on that yearly. That's a yes. lot. Wow. Yeah. So imagine how many spores are there, right? And then if 5 to 20% of those spores survive the winter, we have all those spores surviving. So the thing is that every year we just have more and more and more inoculum surviving in, in Iowa. So, I mean, yeah, farmers can expect to see tar spot next year and the year afterwards and in, in 10 years time, right? The way we're gonna get that under control is by planting resistant hybrids. And, um, you know, if, you, if I look back um, to 2015, 2016, when we had the northern corn leaf blight, um, 
severe epidemics, right? And we had cooler and wetter growing season. And then we had some susceptible hybrids out there. And um, yes, now we can still see northern corn leaf blight. And sure, we haven't had as cool and as wet weather as that pathogen likes, but we also have some decent resistance out there in the hybrids. And so I think that um, once, you know, the seed companies come out with more tolerant hybrids, um, and which, I mean, they are, right? Next year, we have some more tolerant, some hybrids that, at least we have scores now for the hybrids. That's going to help um, just manage this disease. But it's def, you know, just like we have to think about managing gray leaf spot and northern corn leaf blight, we're going to have to think about managing tar spot. So when, when we talk about management of tar spot, uh, Allison, help me kind of understand just the process of identifying the disease, working with it in the lab, and then, and then ultimately seed companies trying to kind of go through that process of identifying uh, plant phenotype and, and, and genetic resistance um, or, or uh, varietal resistance. Kind of help me understand that. So um, that's a great um, point to bring up, Sean, because, you know, with gray leaf spot and northern corn leaf blight, those, those pathogens we can grow in the lab on petri dishes, right, of like a jelly. It's really easy to grow those. Um, because we can grow them in the lab, we can produce inoculum. We can, um, what we'll do in our lab is we'll, we'll grow those, those pathogens on sorghum or millet. And then at around, you know, V6 to V9, V10, we'll go out and we'll put um, some of those um, colonized seeds into the world of corn plants and we'll get that disease to develop, right? So we put the inoculum on there and try to get that disease to develop. And so, you know, and um, so companies have methods that they can inoculate out in the field to now screen these lines looking for phenotypes of resistance. Now with tar spot, the problem with tar spot is we cannot grow that pathogen in the lab and nobody has figured out how to do that yet. And so because we can't grow it out in the lab, we can't make inoculum to inoculate in the field. So that makes it really difficult for the, for the, for the companies and even for public breeders, right? Because now they have to come up with a way of producing inoculum um, that they can then use to inoculate their plants. So, um, you know, at the moment, that's basically collecting um, infected leaves from this year and saving them and then grinding them up and applying them to the plants and then just hoping that you get disease, right? And one of the things that I learned very quickly here at Iowa was just how important the um, environment is for the development of that disease, of any disease, right? I could go and put poor buckets of gray leaf spot inoculum onto a plant and still not get gray leaf spot because I didn't have the right conditions. And so that's the other thing that we have the, with the tar spot is, yes, we can collect a, this inoculum and we can dry it down, we can grind it up, we can put it in the worlds or whatever. But the problem is we, we, we don't have a good understanding yet of the conditions that we need to get that inoculum. Um, you know, and so um, here at Iowa State, we haven't had access to irrigation, but um, other states where there's um, irrigation, 
you know, it's trying to work out how are you going to inoculate these plants and then provide the leaf moisture that, that those spores need to germinate and infect so that you can get the disease to develop so that then you can um, then get phenotype those lines right and find the resistance. So, so I was going to say one other thing. So, so one of the things that that means is that um, when you're breeding, when you're looking for lines is, um, and you rely, you need, you now with Tarspot, you have to rely on natural infection. And so that means putting trials in many different places in the hope that you will get disease at a couple of places that you can then phenotype some lines and get some information. So it, it's a lot harder. It seems like one of the things that's exciting about, um, you know, living in, in agriculture at this moment in time is information travels really fast, right? So we, we do have the ability to see a much broader picture today, <clears throat> excuse me, than we would have, um, you know, maybe historically where we couldn't necessarily know what was happening in Illinois and Ohio and Indiana and those yep. sorts of things. One, one of the things that we want to do um, with, with this podcast in particular is kind of talk about practical application. So help me understand, I guess, Certainly, you've you've made it clear that the that the assay test is difficult to develop. So we're going to rely on on you know really field level expertise and and a broad range. But help me kind of understand the practical application of. You said this disease is here to stay. So what does that mean to my growers? Does does rotation affect it? Um, does does you know does corn on corn make an impact? Kind of help me understand if if it's here to stay what are best practices to think about we're about ready to harvest the 2022 crop and then immediately start planting 2023 so as you think through commercial crop management what what factors come into play um so again good question so just understanding that um the the tar spot pathogen will survive in the residue and so um Yes, in theory, corn on corn fields are going to be more at risk for the disease than corn on soybean fields. However, um, what we've seen is that corn and soybean fields still get the disease. And sometimes we even see the disease occurring on the corn on soybean field before we see it in a neighboring corn on corn field, right? And, um, you know, so, I mean, there's probably several things going on there. Maybe they were planted at slightly different, those two fields were planted at slightly different times. They could have different hybrids. They're obviously going to have different um, nitrogen, right, and, and different um, management like that. And one field might be facing south, the other field might be facing north, or you know, and so you have all these microenvironment conditions. And so, you know, I mean, in the olden days with plant pathology and managing diseases, we used to talk a lot about rotation and how that would help. But in my opinion, um, in Iowa, we don't rotate because we we have corn and soybean and that's it. And so, um, you know, even if you're on a corn and soybean field, you have a corn on corn field or, or you have a soybean on cornfield next door. So you have the residue next door yeah, in the field. It's not, it's not like you're getting enough <laughs> geographical separation to really make a difference. So that must mean then, that must mean then that the spores are moving relatively freely. And, and is that, so, so 
not necessarily soil borne, but, but we're moving through the atmosphere with, with wind and humidity and those sorts of things. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, those spores have to be moving if we've looked, if we look how far and how quickly that disease has spread. And so, and we do have a, um, a project I'm working with um, six other states on this project. It's a um, national predictive modeling tool initiative, which is um, funded by the um, Senate Appropriations Committee. And um, so in those in these standardized trials that we have in seven states, we also have spore traps. And so we'll. Be, this is the first year where we'll be monitoring tar spot spores, just spore loads to see um, what's happening there. So yeah, those spores are definitely flying around. Um, the big question is how far can they travel? But I mean, I, it looks like they can travel pretty quickly, right? So rotation, not really gonna work. I mean, you know, some sort of um, tillage, once again, you know, we used to, as plant pathologists, we used to say, tillage, tillage, bury the residue. And, and that's that physical barrier, but also breaking down that residue quickly. But I mean, we, we, we've learned now, right, that that's not good for the soils. And so, I mean, some type of conservation tillage might help just to bury some of that residue and, um, and, um, help decompose that tissue quickly but you know having said that we're talking about billions and billions and billions of spores right and so maybe you reduce that but you still have millions of spores so um that's not really that i mean for farmers definitely you know as we look to 2023 and the seed companies come out with the numbers um, for the for the tolerance, just like they have numbers for gray leaf spot and northern corn leaf blight, you know, planting um, hybrids that um, score well against um, tar spot would be one thing. And then obviously the other thing is um, fungicides. So we know that fungicides work at managing tar spot. And so, you know, just especially, you know, in eastern Iowa, um, thinking about um, you're probably going to have to put a, a fungicide on. Um, as we go further west, well, then, you know, I might, um, I'm a little bit more conservative on fungicides. As we go west, I'm not sure that you ever really need them. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so, so, Allison, er, earlier you touched on um, just some of the scenarios where we, we've seen tar spot be a little bit more severe. And that kind of got me thinking, you know, as a pathologist, we, we often associate certain diseases with, you know, high yield environments, plenty of moisture, um, adequate fertility, you know, gray leaf spot is, is definitely a disease we, we know likes nitrogen, um, you know, SDS just in general likes the high yield, um, you know, wetter, wetter type environments in, in soybeans. So, so I'm curious, uh, with tar spot, is there any preliminary data that, that might suggest that, that maybe, you know, might, might put, put tar spot uh, into a category of its own as far as, you know, high yield environments, moisture, high populations, high nitrogen, uh, you know, just high fertility in general? Is there any kind of information that we, we may think might, might lead or increase the severity with tar spot? Yeah, um, I remember you talking about this a little bit yesterday. Um, and I was, I've been thinking about this because tar spot is an obligate pathogen, right? And so it needs to, which means it needs to infect and live on live green tissue. And so I think that 
you know, as as those crops stay greener and healthier for for longer, um, that they're more at risk for that tar spot pathogen because that tar spot pathogen is going to jump in on top of that. And I think that there is, if I remember correctly, um, Darcy Telenko and probably Damon Smith, I think they have some data. Also, Nathan Tuchecki, they had data where they showed that tar spot was more severe on um, uh, later maturing hybrids than on earlier maturing hybrids. And probably just because they're greener for longer and they got, you know, and they get, um, they have a longer period to be infected. Um, nitrogen, I mean, I know that yesterday you were, you know, with, you saw um, tar spot on some of those um, nitrogen deficient leaves. And, and I've seen that as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I as I think about Crawfordsville, right, southeast Iowa, um, we had a lot of nitrogen firing going on in the bottom, and actually even in northeast Iowa. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I just I don't I don't know, Andrew. I'm Andrew. I'm quite positive that um, the the nutrition of the crop, the health of the crop probably has a lot to do with how severe that tar spot can be. And um, I agree with you that a healthier crop is probably more with able to withstand infection um, from tar spot. But then at the same time, I also think, you know, a healthier crop is more green tissue and maybe more attractive to the pathogen. So I'm yeah, kind of- kind of see both sides, can't you? What a, what, a, yeah. what, a, what a paradigm, right? I mean, we've spent our whole lives trying to keep crops green and healthy and now, and now that might be the catalyst for the disease. Um, well, but maybe not, Sean, right? Because maybe because they're healthier, they're able to withstand that disease better. Well, so I'm not, you know, Marty Chilvers at University of Michigan um, I think he was doing some like population studies and maybe some nitrogen studies and but I'm I, I haven't really kept up with what he's been doing but so yeah. I'm sure there's somebody working on that but it's not me well I think too one, one of the questions I often get from growers and, and I kind of have in, in the back of my mind as well you know we, we start looking at, at kind of what we're seeing this year you know I, I think in general our, our crops are under a lot of stress Right. We, yeah. we went from a, a period of extreme, satura extremely saturated soils to a month later, you know, the crops being drought stressed. Right. And yeah. so, you know, yeah. you look at, at, at some of the, the field conditions we're seeing right now, we're, we're still under pretty good drought in, in areas. I know we've got some rains here in the last two weeks, but I, but I feel like a lot of those rains were a little too late. You know, yes. probably by like a week or two weeks, you know, that, that, that yeah. was the difference. And so, you know, kind of what I've been seeing, um, you know, I, I discussed this with you yesterday. You know, I'm seeing a lot of crops with nitrogen deficiency, potash deficiency. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you look at tar spot, I'm seeing a lot of those, those fields in those hybrids where it's a little bit worse. It's where those stresses are, are higher. And, you know, like, like I, I, I talked with you about yesterday, where those nitrogen deficiencies are, I'm seeing more tar spot lesions within that zone, you know, within that, yeah. uh, on that leaf where that deficiency is showing up. I'm seeing more tar spot in, in there. And, and so that, that kind of leads to, to my next question. Do you think, you know, we had the discussion yesterday about northern corn leaf blight. You know, northern corn leaf blight can come in and actually, you know, because the, the severity gets so high, kill, kill the plant. 
you know, essentially just cause early senescence and, and kind of be the cause of death for those plants. You know, with tar spot, do you think, do you think that, that, that pathogen is coming in and, and actually killing the plant? Or is it kind of coming in, you know, sensing the plant is stressed and, and coming in and, and just adding to the already stressed plant and then killing it? it, it you know, is it killing it or is it kind of an after fact? So from, from what I've heard from Marty Chilvers and Darcy Telenko and probably Damon Smith as well. And I remember Marty has a slide where he shows the tar spot. He has a slide where he shows a picture of, you know, I don't know, tar spot. And then two weeks later, the whole field is just smoked, completely dead. And so my understanding is from Marty and Darcy is that once when tar spot comes in and we have the right conditions, it can just develop very, very quickly on that plant. And once we get to about 50% disease severity, the plant just goes, I can't take this anymore and just shuts down. So, and then you have the standability issues, right? Because it's just sucking sugar out of that, um, that stalk. So yeah, I've forgotten what your question was. Um, well, <laughs> well, kind of, kind, yeah, of, lead, kind pass- of lead in, is, is, is tar spot essentially what is killing the plants or is it already, you know, is it infecting an already stressed plant that's probably just lead, you know, ha- having an early senescence due to drought stress, heat stress, whatever it may be, nutrient deficiency stress. Is, is it come, is it, is it kind of an after fact to, you know, to those already, those stresses that are already occurring? So my interpretation from Darcy and Marty and Damon is that tar spot is killing the plants. Okay. I, I wonder, I wonder too, Andrew, you know, if you think geographically, right? So when we first started hearing about this in significant quantity, you know, we were hearing about it in Illinois and where we were seeing whole fields devastated, I think more locally or regionally, it seems like we're seeing it in pockets. And I would agree oftentimes when we make the observation, give or take, an hour on either side of, of Ames, Iowa, you know, it seems like we are seeing it develop more in pockets. We're seeing it significantly later in the season. Um, Allison, I, I would like to hear your perspective. So uh, fungicide is, is always kind of an interesting topic, but, but today it seems like kind of the best tool in our tool belt. So talk a little bit about your observations of fungicide efficacy and timing of application relation to observations of the disease? Um, so once, um, this is the first year where I've got pretty good data on fungicides, right, against tar spot, because in previous years, I just haven't had a lot of tar spot in my trials. And the other thing is that, you know, I've been assessing those trials. I haven't had a chance to enter the data yet. Sure. And, and when I walk through my trials, it's just a plot number. I don't know what fungicide it is or not, right? But I mean, having said that, um, one of the, the trial that I walked through at Northeast Iowa, the farm manager always walks through with me and he has the plot map and I will assess the plot. And then sometimes I will say to him, what treatment was that? Sure. And he'll go, oh, it was, you know, what are, you guys are Bayer Delora complete, right? And I'll go, oh, okay, right? And so, um, so, so I mean, I would say what I what I noticed this year is that the newer the newer fungicides um, seem to do better than the older fungicides. 
And and I think that you can only see that under um, high disease severity. Um, that's when it's going to show up. So when you have lower disease severity, it's a little bit hard to pick up that difference between the fungicide. And then the other thing um, from my trials is that um, still that, that tassel application seems to be the best um, timing um, for control of the tar spot. I have a, a master's student who also manages the Southeast Research Farm and the Muscatine Research Farm. And so um, he did he did a V6, V12, VT application, and then he did a, um, a v, V12 plus R3 and a V6 plus VT. And um, we were talking about his data and um, he, he hasn't, he hasn't analyzed it yet either, but he was still saying that he thinks that that application at VTR1 was probably um, the best application. And yeah, maybe those double applications gave him a little bit more control, but he's not sure that it was really, it was really worth the second application, right? Just going in there at the tasseling um, seem to be the best. And, and that's kind of what um, Darcy and Damon and Marty have all recommended that, you know, tasseling is based on their data. It's still the best time to control that disease. So you mentioned newer fungicides. Andrew, would you talk a little bit about um, basically when we when, when I think of the, the new fungicides, right, the, the ones that come to my mind are um, from from national brands would be Delaro Complete, Veltima, Maravis Neo, uh, Trivapro. Um, uh, there's probably a couple I'm forgetting, but when, when I what what makes that that quote new class of fungicide unique, and maybe why are we seeing a higher higher quality control? Yeah, so w whenever we talk those those newer products, I, I think it's you know it, we're seeing a lot uh, a little bit higher uh, triazole percentage wise, and so I think you know traditionally we often think about the triazoles of, of kind of being the workhorse in, in corn, and so. You know, whether you're talking Veltima, Delara Complete, Moravisne, um, or Trivapro, you know, I, I think from what I've seen and, and heard, you know, those those are about the best products you can use, on, especially on a disease like tar spot. And so, you know, I, I think from a grower perspective, you know, there's a lot of options um, out there in the market. I think at the end of the day, you know, you get you got those those top tier products that I that I think most pathologists would recommend, and, and that's what I would recommend. You know, I, I think it's important to to keep the rates up. You know, so that you know the rates obviously going to impact residual, um, but I think at the end of the day, as long as you're using those products, especially with a disease like tar spot that can just come in so quickly, um, you know, I think the multiple modes of action is important, and um, you know, cho choosing a product that has has that SDHI, strobilarin, and, and triazole, I think at the end of the day will give will give you the best efficacy on 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 diseases like tar spot. So I'll ask this question kind of to both of you and either one of you can, can, take, um, can take it, but I make an observation of, of so for a lot of us, we're going we're gonna to run that VT application anyway, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's becoming a more and more common practice. I know sometimes, uh, sometimes uh, uh, maybe to Allison's uh, uh, disagreement, but, but for a lot of us, we're coming preloaded with a, with a VT application. And, and for the most part, we're probably already considering one of those top tier fungicides. But I make that observation of tar spot, uh, and you talked earlier in the podcast, Andrew, just about the severity and and the the voracious the voracious nature of 
how quick this, this disease can, can sporulate. Um, once I've made that observation, when I apply that fungicide, am I actually affecting the disease on the plant or am I just preventing uh, the accumulation of more disease? I feel like we're in, we're doing prelims again, huh, Allison? <laughs> now, th these are good questions. So, you know, when, when we think about those terms, um, curative and preventative, you know, at the end of the day, those are kind of tricky terms, but I think we, we've just been so accustomed to that, you know, that, that's kind of just how we think about fungicides. So, so when we're talking about the, the you know, the group three, the triazoles, um, you know, those, those are the ones that, that have that label, the, the curative. And so, what those will actually do and why they're, they're termed, they're coined curative is because, you know, once that spore germinates and infect the leaf, that, that mycelia is going to grow throughout that leaf tissue and that, that's what's, you know, eventually going to lead to a lesion. And so what those triazoles will do, if, if you get those on within 48 to 72 hours, those triazoles will actually kill that mycelia within the leaf tissue, therefore stopping the spread and the eventual symptomology of, of that disease or of that pathogen. So, so if you already see uh, lesions, you know, we're, we're not gonna do anything to that. We're not gonna cure that. But if, if you just have an environment that's conducive for that pathogen to spread, we can stop any, any spores that have germinated and infected the leaves, we can stop the spread of that pathogen. What the group 11 strobilarins in the SDHIs are, are best at, and, and they're, they're coined the preventative, is they actually prevent those spores from germinating. And so if you think about a pathogen, I guess any disease, you know, once those lesion, lesions uh, are, are on a leaf, leaf tissue, you know, they're going to start producing spores if the environment's conducive. And so if, and that, that's why we so often talk about the importance of multiple modes of action. You know, we need that, we need that strobilarin, that, those triazoles, those SDHIs, so that when those conditions are conducive, we can not only stop, uh, you know, anything that's, that's potentially germinated on leaf tissue, you know, we can stop that spread within the leaf, but we can also have, have that, that preventative, uh, you know, those, those preventative fungicides to stop any spores that are being produced from germinating. And so, so I guess that, that kind of leads to another question, Allison. Um, do we, do we know? Uh, wait, before you, so at the risk <laughs> of prolonging that, I have some, I just want to make a couple of comments. So the way that I think about it is the strobilorins and this SDHIs, stop the fungus from producing energy. And because the fungus can't produce energy, those spores can't germinate, right? Yep. The triazoles stop the, the fungus from growing cell walls. So it can't form all those mycelium and colonize the cells, right? But when in the spore, there's enough, um, there's enough cell wall material in the spore that the spore can germinate and infect but then it runs out of the storage in the spore, right? And so now it has to make those cell wall components and the triazole stops it from doing that. So that's where the preventative and the curative come in, is that the curative is stopping the mycelium growth. The other thing is that I wanted to remind listeners was that those fungicides are gonna hang out in that leaf for three to six weeks, depending on what product you're using, right? And during those three to six weeks, we continually have spores landing on the leaf. So the strobilorins will stop any spores landing on the leaf from germinating. And, and then if you don't have a strobilorin in there, you just have the triazole, sure, you'll get infection, but then the triazole is gonna stop that mycelium from now colonizing the leaf.
And, and that, that leads, I mean, we, we had a, an excellent conversation yesterday, and I think that just gives gives listeners an insight to some of the, the outside of the box thinking in, in, in conversations that you and some I of the challenges that Andrew gives me. <laughs> but you so, know, so they're, they're, as I'm, as I'm watching you guys, so you got to understand when, when we're doing this podcast, we have Allison on video so that way we can have a, a good dialogue. And all I could think about during that exchange was how fun it would have been to be part of your <laughs> PhD dissertation <laughs> and watch Allison sit there and take notes and, and eventually come back and challenge you. I apologize. Go ahead. No, that's, that's, that's good. No, <laughs> that, that perfect insight into some of the challenges and, and just some of the, the, you know, maybe some of the stuff that doesn't get discussed, discussed as far as disease, fungicides, yield potential. You know, we had the conversation yesterday about spore production, you know, in, infecting the leaves, mycelia growth. And there is, a, I mean, anytime you start talking resistance, um, there's, there's a fitness cost associated with that plant detecting Absolutely. spores, the, that, that plant, you know, that the spore germinated and infecting the leaf. There's a fitness cost associated with that plant responding to not only the spore landing on the leaf, but the that you know that spore germinating and infecting the leaf. There's a fitness cost associated with that. So I, I think that that kind of leads into my next question, Allison. You know, with that fitness cost associated with that, and in some of the 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 early research we've done on on fungicides and and tar spot control, is, is there kind of a threshold where you know, you, you need to be pulling that trigger with tar spot. Um, and, and maybe that, that threshold, if you already see this, you know, that percentage of disease severity on the leaf, are you maybe better off just not applying a fungicide because you won't get the results you expect or, you know, that the, the pathogen's already infected long enough, you know, that 48 to 72 hour window's passed and maybe you're, you're, you're still going to see symptomology more so than you, than, than you would traditionally expect with the fungicide application. Another loaded question. Um, so um, thresholds are very hard to develop in plant pathology just because you have this environmental component, right? Which, I mean, the weather's, you know, we can have a, a very, very hot, dry week, and then we can have a cooler week where we have leaf moisture around for, you know, until nine, 10 o'clock in the morning. And so that's going to favor disease. So that's why a threshold is very hard. Um, I'm going to quote Darcy again and hopefully not misquote her. But I believe, I believe that Darcy said that once told me that if you have more than 5% tar spot on an ear leaf, that it is too late to spray a fungicide. So most of the time um, with, you know, when we think about protecting that corn, we want to protect the the ear leaf and above, because those are the workhorse leaves. Those, they're providing 75 to 90% of the carbohydrates for grain fill. So that's what we want to protect. And so, um, you know, a lot of times we talk about, okay, if you see disease developing in the lower canopy, then you know that it's there, the conditions have been right. And now you just, you want to wait, you know, you want to, you want to hold off as long as possible until you can, um, it, it's getting up to that ear leaf. Um, yeah, so once you get the spore and then infecting with tar spot, it's usually about two weeks until um, you see disease symptoms. And Damon Smith has a postdoc who has, um, she's shown that very nicely in her data that, that it is about two to three weeks um, until we see symptoms and, and more spore production. So, yeah, I mean, 
you could argue that if you have tar spot on the ear leaf minus two and you can actually see the lesion, so two years, two leaves below the ear leaf, that maybe there's already spores that have infected the ear leaf and, um, and you haven't got a fungicide on yet, right? But I think the thing, I think we're so conditioned into having these perfectly clean pots, right? Perfectly clean um, apples, right? Nobody wants to watch and fly spec on their apples, right? That's True that. And there's nothing, you know? So, I mean, I think the thing is that we have in this idea that we've got to have these perfectly clean um, plants for us to get the most yield out of them. But I think that those plants can tolerate a little bit of infection before we actually see it hurting yield in any way that it's going to be economic. And so, yeah, I mean, in terms of thresholds, I would, you know, if you're seeing that disease come in in that lower canopy and you're at, you know, V12, V14, V16, um, just timing that application for tassel through brown silk, um, it's, that's okay. Um, sure, you might spray that fungicide and have and still see a few spots develop on that ear leaf because they were there infecting before you sprayed the fungicide. But um, I think that that's okay. You know, we do, it, that, those leaves do not have to be perfectly clean. I think that as I hear the, the conversation between you and Andrew and the explanation of how fungicide works and, and, and frankly what just feels to me like a really insecure two to probably four year window as we're trying to understand, you know, plant phenotype response and fungicide timing application, you know, kind of the things that, that feel really important to me is probably the principles that Andrew and I go back to, which is we just, we need to understand the right hybrid placement in the right environment, right? Because, because certainly fungicide or not fungicide, certainly tar spot is not the only concern we have in 2023, right? So we still yes. have to pick the right hybrid. We have to place it on the right field. We have to manage that hybrid for our goals, uh, meaning all the all the baseline um, fertility, and then and then any of the additional tools that we're using, and then ultimately for me, I think when I think about just the greater ag ecosphere right now would be you know making sure I have a really well put together plan in terms of access to the type of fungicide I want, probably making sure I'm scouting frequently when we get into that v12 to v14 range because if i don't have a baseline understanding of what's happening in my field how can i make a high quality recommendation um, and then ultimately probably really just trying to participate well in the greater ag space to communicate what we're seeing because i think when i hear you guys talking about the difficulty of working with tar spot in the lab in my opinion that puts a greater burden on on me as a as a seed provider and and as a, a farmer just to help understand what's really happening in our in our fields understanding hybrid response um, and and that sort of thing so this is really beneficial um, I, I guess um, you know I guess as we kind of uh, try and tie a bow on a very complex conversation Allison is there is there anything you feel like we we haven't really hit on as, as far as our current knowledge of the disease or the way to think about it as we as we plan for 2023. I mean, I don't, I don't think so. I, I, I mean, I think what I've just seen, you know, in the last 20 years of my career is that you answer one question, but you have a dozen more. Yeah. <laughs> and so, 
the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. And um, so, you know, we're learning and we've learned a ton since Tarspot was, you know, first found in 2015. We've really learned a lot, but we also have a thousand new questions. And so, yeah, I mean, everybody, everybody realizes the threat Tarspot is to corn production and everyone in the public and the private sector is doing their best to um, come up with tools for farmers, right? So that, that, so that we can grow corn and we can be, be profitable. And I think that um, if farmers just recognize that, that at the end of the day, we're all trying our damnedest <laughs> to, to well control said. this thing and to put tools in the, in the toolbox, um, you know, that, yeah, sometimes it, it seems like it's taking forever. And sometimes it seems, it maybe seems like we don't know what we're doing, but yeah, we're doing our best. Well, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. And I, I wish I could just bottle that paragraph because honestly, Allison, I mean, that is the, um, that's the umbrella that we're doing this podcast under is, you know, brands are important, right? I mean, there's a lot of great companies that are, that are doing a lot of research. There's a great, a lot of great universities that are participating and, and, and bringing information. What Andrew and I want to do is really just speak to the greater ag community, kind of, kind of set aside the brand, set aside the, the, the biases and just say, let's talk about real agronomy and how we approach it. And so I think it's, it's, it's really refreshing to say, Hey, we're learning a lot, but, but that leads to a lot more questions. And probably what encourages me is we, we don't have all the information today, but we have a lot of really good tools to work, to work well with this disease. And so your call out that it's okay to see a couple lesions, you know, I think it's valuable. We don't, we don't have to be terrified of this disease. We have to put a really good plan in place that we're ready to execute on. And there is a ton of, of really talented people paying close attention to tar spot. And to me, that's really encouraging. Um, I think back to Goss's wilt, and it felt just really, really handicapping at the time because we, we had no technology. So we yeah. literally had to limp our way through um, phenotype response. And that was, you know, that, that was a really insecure time because you're sitting there going, I, I have no idea. I guess we're going to put a crop out and, and, and just cross our fingers. It feels like at least with tar spot, we, we have the ability to, um, at least reasonably manage through the disease. And we at least have enough information to scout it. Well, um, we are going to start a new mini segment as we end our um, as we end our podcast today, and this is going to be kind of aimed at at Andrew, um, but but certainly Allison would would uh, would love you to either maybe give him a grade or or maybe some sort of a, a dissertation feedback. Um, our podcast is called A Penny for Your Thoughts, and at the end of our podcast, I am going to cash in my penny. Um, so I'm going to ask Andrew to provide me um, kind of three succinct takeaways from our time today with, with Allison and uh, Tarspot. I, I would say the, the, the biggest takeaways, um, you know, I, I always really enjoy listening to Allison. Um, I, I think some of the biggest takeaways that, that we can have as, as producers, agronomists, crop consultants, I mean, we, we know the disease is here to stay. We, we know the, the, uh, the pathogen overwinters here in Iowa. Um, you know, at this point, I, I, there, there's no good inoculation assay, so it, it is hard to get good ratings right now. You know, the, the second I feel comfortable about 
uh, a specific product's performance. I can go to a different part of the state with a different environment and get, and get different ratings. So it's just hard to rate products right now. Um, I, I think what, what we're hearing and seeing is that that fungus, that tassel, you know, the R1 to R2 application, give or take, is still the, the best timing for a fungus application. You know, we get a lot of questions about B5, B16, plus an R1, R2. And I think there's, there's obviously different environments and different factors at play, you know, Illinois versus Iowa, Indiana versus Iowa. But I think here in Iowa, um, in, in general, in, in uh, surrounding states, depending on the environment, that tassel application is, is still going to be the best timing, you know, looking at your R and ROI and, and the efficacy of that fungicide. Um, with that, um, I think, you know, it, Sean, you touched on it earlier. I think just focusing on, on product performance, high yield potential, and all the, the, the macros and micros, you know, that, that, that make up a crop, fertility level, uh, all the stuff, I think we still need to focus on that. And then respond to tar spot, um, you know, let, let mother nature and that disease triangle that Allison likes to talk about, let that dictate uh, the fungicide application uh, discussion. Th those are my key takeaways, and hopefully that was worth the penny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Allison, anything, anything to add to key takeaways from today? Yeah, I think that um, Andrew did a pretty good job of, of summarizing. So I, I think yeah, that that I mean, would that would match Allison's dis description of me as a grad student. She would say pretty good, pretty good, not the best, not the worst, just pretty good. Andrew, Andrew, <laughs> Andrew doesn't currently struggle with confidence, so let's give him like maybe like a B plus. I don't I don't know that we need him leaving here with any more. Um, Allison, one of our goals is to connect people. Um, what if our listeners want to uh, communicate with you? Help us understand the best way to do that. Um, I'm very good at returning emails. Okay. So my email address is Allison R. Remember, Allison has one L at iastate.edu. I'm also on Twitter. So Allison R. ISU. Um, you're welcome to direct message me that way. And then my um, office phone number is 515-294-6708. I'm probably not very good with phone calls. I prefer emails or um, uh, messaging via Twitter. But yeah, I'm always happy to answer questions. I love um, hearing ideas and questions from out there on the front line because um, then um, I'm less um, cocooned in my ivory tower. So, <laughs> Well, we, we, we can't tell you how much we appreciate this. I, th I think as we... As we think about Tarspot, just just greatly appreciate you spending the time with us today. Um, Andrew, as we wrap up, give us a little bit of a teaser about our podcast next week. Yeah, so similar to last week, man, I'm excited for the, the guest we have. Uh, I think a lot of people will recognize the name. Uh, we're we're going to be focusing on ear rots. You know, I think with the environment we have, whether it's hail, uh, heat stress, uh, insect feeding, you know, I've already started to see a lot of uh, ear rots come up. So I think it's perfect timing for our next guest uh, leading in, you know, uh, next week. So excited about it. Um, Allison, thank you for your time today. Andrew, thank you for your time today. Appreciate all of you listeners. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Thank you, Allison. Thanks for having me, thanks for having me guys.